Good morning. How are you? Hello, folks at home. It's good to be back. I had a couple bye weeks, and uh, it's good to be here with you again. Um, we're going to be looking uh, at Joseph. We're winding up the story of Joseph. It's probably my favorite story outside the Gospels account. I was looking this morning and I realized, boy, this passage is really short. I should have sent more verses. <laughs> so I am adding, because I didn't tell them to print the first five verses of chapter 45. So that's on me. And uh, yeah, it is too short. Uh, we're, we're just learning that the uh, character of Hebrew narrative is to repeat a lot of things. And um, they're, they're, um, they're still very, very rich. So let's begin with prayer, and then we'll read this long section in your bulletin, and then I'll add a little bit to it from um, the Bible here on, on, my, on the pulpit. Heavenly Father, thank you. Uh, may you please uh, help us to hear your word. May your spirit uh, convey every um, syllable to us, all of its significance and its saving power to our souls, we pray, because um, we're asking in Jesus' name. Amen. So to catch you up or remind you from forever ago when I was here last, what's just gone on is the brothers have uh, just come back and, and they ate a really awkward meal with Joseph uh, after he's just been cycling through all, all these benevolent head games with them. And uh, they're amazed and they're at a table. And then some um, few days, maybe the next day later, we're not exactly sure this is what we read. Then he, that's Joseph, commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up. Follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. Little parentheses. Joseph's not practicing divination. This whole thing's a ruse. He's just messing with their heads. Um, We're privy to the whole reason why he knew this. He knew it because he did it. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. And they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say. He was found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to To the ground, Joseph said to them, What deed is it that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, 
What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man whose hand the cup w- in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O Lord, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let your anger turn against your servant for you are like Pharaoh himself. Let not your anger turn against your servant. My Lord asked his servants saying, have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead and he alone is left of his mother's children and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father and when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If the youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, his As his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety to the boy, to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please... Let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back to with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood before him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. This is, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said to them, I am your brother Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Amen. 
Well, that's quite a story in the revelation of uh, maybe 15 or so years of, of trial. I want to take you back more than that to a movie that I'm not going to recommend, except you can find this scene on YouTube by itself, um, Officer and a Gentleman. Um, by the way, for you younger folks, they were making movies in 1982. They were color. They had sound in them. Everything was almost just like it is now. And um, Richard Gere was uh, trying to become an officer and in the Navy. And uh, Louis Gossett Jr., great actor, was his drill sergeant. And drill sergeants are meanies. You can ask my son. He was a, a Marine Corps infantryman. And... Um, in this great scene, this drill sergeant wants um, Zach Mayo, this character, to quit because he doesn't like him. And he's brutalizing him. And he's finally frustrated that, that Mayo won't quit. And he gets up in his face and he yells and goes, why won't you quit? And Richard Gere and his character starts to weep. And he says, because I ain't got nowhere else to go. Some people say Christianity is for people who need a crutch. No, Christianity is for people who have nowhere else to go. So if you have somewhere else to go, if you have money to go to, if you have relationship to go to, if you have success to go to, if you have your own hobbies to go to, if you have anything else to go to, then you should go there because Christianity only works for people who are trapped between the love of the Father and the Son, just like these brothers were trapped between Joseph's continued love for them and the Father's love for his son Joseph. Christianity is for people that have no other choice. If you have another choice, I suggest you use it till that choice proves itself unsuitable because Christianity is the gospel trapping us between the father and the son to restore us to both and this is how it does it as we've seen through this story it um, chases our sin it corners us between the father and the son and then it reveals the son to restore the father so let's take a look at this passage and how it does it we're gonna have to go back a little bit in our memory because um the promise and the sin of the brothers have been in a chase from the very beginning, from the very first chapter 37, when um, the dreams came that are fulfilled, when the brothers bow down to Joseph. Um, when those dreams came, uh, they began to um, a chase. Think about the whole thing. We'll look at it more clearly in a minute. But the dreams put the sons, the other sons, between Joseph and his father. Joseph was the favorite. And the father was the patriarch. And they were trapped. From that moment forward, like the rest of us, there's no escaping that dynamic. We are caught between um, the father's favorite. This is my son whom... I love and with him I'm well pleased. That's a quote from a passage in the Bible. And the father. He's the favorite. God's the father. And we're the other, other 11 brothers. And, and here we are. So what happens is that this whole story, as we've already seen, is Joseph uh, chasing after their sin in a, in a benevolent pursuit. 
he stages their guilt again. You'll remember if you were here a couple weeks ago, and if not, that's okay. You can, you can find it online if you're, if you're that motivated. Um, you, uh, you remember that Joseph has been doing this thing with silver and brothers since um, a couple chapters ago. That's how it started. The brothers came back with too much silver because they sold their brother and won too few brothers. And then Joseph does the same thing to them a, a chapter ago or two chapters ago. He sends them back with too much silver and one too few brothers. And then in this passage, Joseph's still on the same theme. He takes this divination cup. He gives them all their money back, a divination cup, probably silver too. And they, he puts it in there and he's still trapping them. Here's what I would have uh, you know if you want to follow Christ or if you're following Christ. God is, uh, is in the same benevolent pursuit of you all the time. Uh, trying to help you see that you can't really escape your sin until you get to the place where we'll see Judah has found himself in a few moments. This silver plus sons exposing our guilt, that's a paradigm. God's doing that with whatever uh, he's doing in your life. And then what happens in this pursuit is we make these ridiculous, we're prone to at least, these ridiculous uh, assertions of our innocence. This has got a very, very rich one. When they're trapped in this uh, trap set by Joseph and his servants, when they're trapped in that, uh, this is one of the great, uh, this line is at the intersection of irony and hypocrisy, as if they're driving in a car where they put the tinted window on the inside and not the outside. They've got no idea where they are. And they look at the steward and they say, oh, we would never do that. We would never steal stuff. And of course, if we've read the story, we're like, really? You you would sell your brother into slavery. Are are we so and what I would have us remember is our assertions of our innocence uh, are just as transparently ironic and hypocritical. Um, to God. He too sees us driving around in our car, and we have foolishly put the tent on the inside of the windshield. And he can see us perfectly, um, but we really can't see what's going on. And we're then um, ambushed by this plan of God's benevolent providence. In this case, it works out um, once again where the innocent has been trapped and the guilty have been vindicated. He's reenacting what happened in chapter 37. Remember that Benjamin didn't take this cup. It was placed in there. That the brothers aren't innocent. That, that Joseph has even more, in a more focused and refined and specific way than he did a couple chapters ago. Joseph has restaged everything about the sin that started this entire journey. The innocent brother is now to be enslaved and the brothers who are truly guilty, they're going to be released. Remember what Joseph says, oh, far be it from me. Oh, no, I'm not going to punish all you innocent guys. You guys are innocent. No, it's, it's, it's Benjamin here. And he's forcing this. What happens when God chases our sin? Well, the end of the story is they, they come to repentance, but, but they're not there yet. And pastorally, um, 
And maybe our own Christian life, we understand that repentance is a journey that takes a while to get to. Um, They have some early signs of sorrow. Um, The first expression of sorrow in the brothers uh, since the whole story began. They're crushed. They ripped their clothes. They they know that they're now uh, bearing the fruit of their sin. And they're going to use the word guilt for the first time um, or, or the second time. Uh, in just a, a little bit. So this sorrow emerges. Um, but if you remember some things that a man named Paul said in the New Testament, sorrow's not repentance. It, sorrow's part of repentance, but sorrow isn't repentance. You know, I've, I've been a pastor for a long time, and uh, I've watched many tears that weren't repentant. And I've been a Christian a long time. And I've shed many tears that weren't repentance. Because we don't like to admit this, but we're just like you guys. You know, we just went to school. And uh, their broken hearts um, are only starting to crack. And then there's a kind of, of humiliation In verse 14, there's this interesting word. Let's backtrack. There was a dream. They were all going to bow down to Joseph. That's how this whole thing started. And we've seen a couple times that they bowed down to Joseph. And we've always noted, hey, the dream's coming true. The dream's coming true. Um, This one is a little bit more intense. Uh, The the other words that she used is, you know, sort of a, um, a collected, intentional, reverent sort of bowing. Okay. Uh, you notice that it was, maybe that it was translated here. They just fell. These guys are desperate. They're losing it. They're out of control. They just throw themselves at his feet. They know that, that um, there's nowhere else to go. And so they throw themselves down um, at the feet of Jesus. This is all part of being chased by sin. If you're in these places where, where you're sad but not broken, where, where you're um, humiliated but but not ready to confess. These are all you're just being chased, and God's faster than you, and He knows where you're going to turn, and He's loving you. You know the there's a famous passage in the in the Greek part of the Bible we call the New Testament, where we're told that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. But when you read the passage, you find out that they're not all believing; they're just admitting. And so we can, we can get there. Well, it, it starts to get a little better. You can see that God's chasing their sin has uh, worked sorrow and humiliation. And then we start to see confession emerge. This is a remarkable thing to say um, to Joseph when they're finally in his presence. What do we hear? We finally hear the people who have had a story all along don't have a story anymore. What can we say? What am I going to say? How am I going to defend myself? My guilt's been found out. This is the sign of someone who is entering into repentance. I don't have a story. I don't have an excuse. I don't have anything to say other than God have mercy on me. You know, how we sinned, what it came from, what the 
Genesis and origin was and what we're trying to make up for and the wounds that, that made us limp into iniquity. Those things are all important. But remember this, Jesus died for sins, not for explanations. So if, if you want to embrace the forgiving love of Jesus' death, Fine, learn why you're a sinner. Learn all the things that make you sin. That's actually pretty helpful. But remember, at the end of the day, it's you that sinned and Jesus who died for it. There's another place where the same guy, Paul, we've mentioned before, wrote, Now we know what other law says. It says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. If you're still talking, you're not repenting. Same goes for me. Verse 16 is significant as it comes right after they admit they have nothing to say. They say, God has found out the guilt of your servants. That's plural. He's not saying God found out the guilt of Benjamin. But here's the most important thing. That's the first time the brothers have used the word God in the entire story. The only thing that they mention is they they say they came back uh, with their silver. They have a little bit of excuse left because the father sent them back with the silver, remember? The father sent them back a couple stories ago. So they have one act of righteousness that they did because the father told them to. And so, here they are. They have been, in the words of the brothers, found out, revealed. Being um, aware of your sin and acknowledging it is uh, profoundly vulnerable. It is a complete spiritual exposure. It's uh, properly understood a moment or moments or a life of, of absolute dependence. Because you're asking God for mercy... And you can only ask for mercy. You cannot demand mercy. And so no wonder no one wants to confess their sins. <clears throat> there's, there's always something um, more pleasant to do, more entertaining, more satisfying than admitting your sin. So the brothers actually are acknowledging their guilt, but the, the whole course of redemption is not yet constituted. They don't know who they're talking to just yet. I was, um, I'll tell you a story about leaving the church. Some people left my, believe it or not, I know you can't believe this, people have left my church. And I'm not talking about moving, I'm just talking about they went to a different church in the same town. Yeah, whatever. But um, 
I would say this, just people don't leave church as well, but that's a different sermon. Not pastors don't particularly either. I think Brad did. But, uh, but so that's an issue, but you know, I'm not going to be here long enough to talk about that. I will say that, that I got a call once. Phones used to, young people, phones used to like be attached to things. And, uh, and I got a call on a phone that was attached to something. My, my secretary, or admitted, well, back then she was a secretary. Now they're executive assistants. But, but she came in and she said, she said, hey, I uh, got a call. And it was a guy that left my church like seven years earlier. And uh, he goes, hey, I said, hello. They just ghosted us. It was before ghosting was a word, but they ghosted us. And, they, and I said, how you doing? He goes, hey, I'm over at um, big old church cross town. He goes, you know, and a pastor was talking, one of the pastors, they had like 11 pastors. One of the pastors at Sunday school was talking about how to leave a church. And my wife and I realized that we really didn't leave Green Lake at the time very well. And, you know, that was, that was probably pretty tough. And, and I'm just calling you to say, I wish I would have done that differently. And, uh, you know, this and that. And, you know, we've learned some things. And I just thought it was important to circle back. And, and I'm sitting to myself, I'm thinking, like, this is a huge win for a pastor. I'm like, wow, wow. This guy, like, good this is great. And I said, well, Bob, I can't remember his name. Maybe I hope it wasn't Bob, but I go, I go, Hey Bob, thanks, Bob. Uh, I really appreciate that. You know, thanks. Thanks for the call. He goes, all right. Thanks, Pastor Kelly. And we start to hang up. He goes, Oh, Oh, well, what, why, one other thing, one other thing. I go, sure. What? He goes, he goes, yeah, you know, your preaching never really connected with us. That was the last thing the guy has ever said to me. I was like, I thought to myself, dude, you got to go take that class again. Because that gratuitous smackdown tells me you have not repented. Yeah, that's, that's a true story. I love it. It was worth it now because I've told that story so many times. I got, I got a lot of tread on that story. But Joseph's not going to let it end there. Joseph is not going to let it end there. And thankfully, either, more importantly, will Judah. Because what happens next is that Judah is going to lean into the fullness of his repentance after he realizes that he has got nowhere else to go. He's been trapped between the father and the son. And this is what we need to see for the the whole story. The whole thing, as I alluded to or said before, um, the whole dream, the whole setup, before even the dreams, we learned that Joseph was the favorite. And then these dreams indicate that he's going to be exalted. And so from the very beginning, these poor suckers, um, they're in between the father and the son. And they've got to come to terms with the fact that if they love their father, they need to love his favorite. And so if you love God, you should love his favorite. God has a favorite. Our elder brother, Jesus Christ, is God's favorite. And so this whole thing, this whole story is about the favorite son and the father sending each other back and forth. He's the favorite. He sends Joseph at the beginning. Hey, uh, go be my agent and check on the brothers. And the brothers... um, 
throw, sell them into Egypt and they go back. And now they're back with the father. And then the famine comes and the father sends them back. He doesn't know it. He sends them back to the brother. And then, and then Joseph says, yeah, you know what? I'm going to keep one of your brothers. I'm going to give you some silver and I'm going to send you back to your dad. And then the dad runs out of food and he says, the father says, all right, Go back, to your, go back to your brother now. Even though they don't know this, we know this. We're watching the father and the son exercise their dominion to trap us between them in their love for one another so that they can forgive us. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased That's what the Father said of Jesus on more than one occasion. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Christianity is for people who have nowhere else to go. If you have another road you want to take, if you have money or success or position or relationship or hobbies or addiction or whatever you have, then just go there because Christianity is for people who don't have anywhere else to go. And Judah realizes he's got nowhere else to go. And then he says something truly, truly remarkable. He fulfills his pledge. He says... This can't happen. I'm caught between the Father's love for the Son and my love for the Father and my contempt for the Son. I've made a pledge to them. I'm bonded with them in this familial covenant. And so he looks at Joseph And he says, take me and send Benjamin home. Now we must remember that Joseph was down deep in a cistern the last time Judah had an idea like this. But he undoubtedly heard him. Because this is the exact undoing of how this whole thing started. They were going to kill Joseph and Judah had an idea. And Judah said to his brothers, what are we going to kill him for? Let's sell him into slavery. Get the money. And then tell the father that he was eaten by an animal. That's 37 verse 26. And that the revelation of the son comes right after Judah owns his own sin and is willing to die his own death. When he says exactly the opposite, when his plan is inverted, when he realizes he's got nowhere to go except into the judgment of the son, who he doesn't even know yet. And that's what moves Joseph to tears. And Joseph starts to say amazing things, but first I want you to understand that um, Joseph weeps not out of vindication. He weeps out of love. 
There's more rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents than for 99 sinners who don't repent. And it's not just angels. It's the Father and the Son, too. They're just waiting for you to realize you are cornered by the love of the Father and the Son. And you've got nowhere else to go. And then they'll say things like this, don't be distressed. No, this was done to preserve lives. God has purpose in this. If you got somewhere else to go, go. But you don't need another place to go. And here's a news flash, there is no place to go. I want to tell you a story about when I was 16 in Minnesota. We were at a camp, a young life camp, and there was a, you know, a lake there, Pelican Lake, and then uh, out from the dock there was a floating dock, and uh, all the young ladies were float, you know, sunning on the floating dock. So all the young guys, we had an idea. Here's a pro tip for you young men. You know, we were going to swim under the water and get under the dock and splash them. And girls love that stuff. So, so that's a little pro tip for you guys. And, you know, girls love it when you do that, but no, they don't. But anyway, so we um, held our breath. And this one I realized I was not going to be a Navy SEAL. We, we held our breath. And it uh, turns out I'm, I'm, a, I'm a slow underwater swimmer. Okay, because everybody else got there first. And by the time I got there, it was like my chest was about to explode. I was terrified, but I was way too proud to come up early. So um, I, I came in and I came under the dock. And right when I came under the dock, the girls, just so excited that we had done this, stood up and they all walked over to one end of the dock and they, they sunk the dock underwater. And I came up on that side for air. I was already overdue for air. And I hit my head, and, and I, was, um, I, I was panicking because I really thought that I, I mean, I, I, this was going to be it. So I pushed away, and I looked for some light, and I went over to the other, where, just where I saw the light. I wasn't really thinking about it. Turns out it was the other side of the dock, and then when the girls realized they were about to fall in, they all ran over to that side of the dock. <laughs> and I came up, and I hit my head on that side of the dock. And I was terrified. I don't know how it happened, but somehow I found air and got out. And, uh, you know, I, it wasn't a good look for me, okay? The whole thing was about, you know, looking cool, and I did not look cool. But here's what did happen. The day after having nowhere else to go, I became a Christian. I don't know if it was related. I wasn't really doing the math in my head at the time, but I'm thinking, I almost died. I wonder if I thought, I better do something about that. Next day, I became a Christian. The day after, I realized I had nowhere to go. And I sure hope you don't have anywhere else to go. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercies. I ask you please to um, teach us... um, that there is nothing and there is nowhere 
except right here before the Son and the Father who weep and rejoice to welcome us back. We pray in his good name. Amen.